this podcast called A Dialogue with the Wall. The Wall, as described in the book, The Critical Journey. This podcast is hosted by Janet Hagberg and Danielle Jones. Hello, Danielle. Hi, Janet. Are you ready? I hope so. (laughs) Welcome to The Wall. The Wall is a deeply holy place on the faith journey. It is always individual, mysterious, God-shaped, and infused with spirit. And it always invites us to transformation. But the wall is one of the most difficult parts of the faith journey and asks more surrender of us than we may think we're capable of. It is equally alluring and treacherous. Yet, the wall is ultimately a place of healing of ourselves and our image of God. We need to have a lot of compassion for ourselves and for anyone else who is experiencing the wall. I, Janet, author of The Critical Journey, have been asked by my readers to delve a bit more deeply into the phases of the wall. As a way to bring greater understanding to these phases, I've invited my friend Danielle, a clergy member, to enter into a dialogue with me about our real-life stories and the three phases of the wall. Approaching the wall, embracing the wall, and then releasing the wall. We will only be able to describe a few characteristics of each phase in hopes that the reader will be interested in reading more about the wall or meeting with a spiritual director who is trained to listen to people's spiritual journeys and guide them through the wall. We will also include the wall stories of Bobby, Derek, Michael, and David in hopes that their stories will help explain this whole spiritual process. So Danielle, let's go. (laughs) All right. Well, one of the teachers who utilizes this idea of the wall is Ellen Duffield. She thinks of the wall as a crucible, which is a masterful image. She writes, as I often use the language of a journey towards wisdom, I describe the wall as a powerful crucible experience that enables us to let go of those feelings that would cause us to be less true to ourselves, less intimately connected to both the divine and and humanity at large, and more open to the calling of humility, creativity, wisdom, inspiration, and true leadership. So let's start unpacking this wall. We'll begin with part one, approaching the wall. So here we are approaching the wall. There are numerous ways that we enter a wall experience, but there are a few that are pretty clear signs. Let's, let's list a few and then illustrate them with our own personal stories, shall we? One of the surest signs of an invitation to the wall is of repeated struggles with the same type of issue. Maybe repeated patterns over a long period of time that now seem to get worse or come to a head. These could include spiritual crises, chronic family issues, job loss, or repeated stresses, our own addictions or others, mental illness, a total loss of faith, chronic physical symptoms, or leaving several churches or ministers who have not been meeting our needs, or noticing that the same types of people showing up in our lives over and over. There are lots of ways into the wall. How would you like to tell the story of how you became aware that you were entering a wall in your own life? Okay, well, for me, (laughs) my body started giving me signals that I was nearing the wall before my mind could articulate what my heart had been feeling. For a period of more than two years, I'd say, I found that every cold I got turned into a massive sinus infection. The sinus infections would go on and on for weeks and seemed to me to be less connected to the illness 
and more connected to the state of my mental health. Upon processing and reflection, in time I started to become aware that these infections were deeply connected to what was happening in my relationship with my mother, and specifically to the ways that I was working to manage her mental illness. When my mother's mental illness would flare up, I would overfunction and I would try to fix things for her. And then I would wear myself out, I'd start to get a cold, I would resent the cold and my mother, who I felt had given it to me, and the cold would inevitably turn into one of these big sinus infections. Then in another season of my life, I was deeply frustrated with a coworker that I was working with, and I began getting pink eye, actually, on a regular basis. And in time, through prayer and wise counsel, I came to realize that this pink eye I would get was actually a sign that I was in another power struggle at work. Every time I had pink eye, I realized I was working to control someone or something and that these efforts at control were not working. And so I literally felt like I was making myself sick. (laughs) I have been utterly amazed at how clear your symptoms have been and how you've learned that when you see the patterns of them, it's an invitation to do the hard work of releasing the fear and the damaging influence that these people have had in your life. So hard to do and yet so freeing, but arg, you know. (laughs) Yes, so hard. (laughs) One thing we've noticed is that reaching the wall comes through many different life experiences. The wall is a deeply personal place. Some people are in jobs that they're struggling with or failing at, and this has been a repeated pattern over years. And yet it seems impossible for them to consider leaving for something else primarily because their identity is so tied with their work. Others have totally lost their faith due to a breach of ethics or morality, and they're stuck because in their tradition, they're seen as the fault, the one who has lost their faith, not the fault of the system that has perpetrated the abuse. So Janet, I've told you part of my story of realizing (laughs) I was at the wall. How have you experienced approaching the wall? Oh, yeah, one of my most difficult personal examples is the addictive and shame-based pattern that I have of staying in relationships that are toxic for me and using any number of excuses not to leave. This includes marriage, jobs, and friendships. But because the shame was so great in any of these, I thought I had to stay in in these relationships in order to survive, while the very opposite was true. One of the ways that I knew I had to do some inner work was when I was first beginning to work on a domestic abuse project in my city. I had a very frightening dream right around the time that we were bringing this um, silent witness project to uh, a a march. And my dream was that I was in a boxcar of a train, and it was locked, and I was inside, and the boxcar was on fire. And it was going around in circles like a figure eight, which is a symbol for infinity, And on a plaque on the outside of the boxcar was my mother's name. It became really clear to me that there was a connection between this dream and what was happening in my life and in my professional life. Eventually, I knew that I I had now been starting to repeat my mother's pattern of acquiescing to an abusive marriage, and that was mind-boggling. I would never have thought that up. The dream had to bring it to me. And every time you've ever shared it with me, it's so powerful. And what's extraordinary is that it's also so memorable. I mean, you knew that it meant something to you. As you tell the story, you 
were immediately aware that this dream wanted to get your attention. And as you spent time processing it and praying through it, you came to realize that it was a warning that you were traveling down a well-worn pattern <laughs> in your sure. life and in family members' lives <laughs> mm -hmm. too. So understanding a key dream or a recurring scenario seemed to be a key to unlocking the pattern that you felt stuck in. Yes, and that started a major life change. A hard one, but a major one in my life. So Danielle, when and how did you realize that you were facing directly into the wall? Well, for me, my mother had struggled with undiagnosed mental illness my whole life. And her illness manifested itself over and over again in my life through verbal abuse, outbursts that she would have, shaming ways that she would behave toward me and others in her family, and all the ways that she would project her own insecurities and pain onto me. Over time, I realized that I was caught in this cycle that looked like me walking on eggshells to try and please her, to prevent her from doing these things. And then I would start to overfunction and perform in other areas of my life to gain love. And, and then I would endure this mental and emotional abuse to maintain a good, quote unquote, relationship with my mother. The awareness that I was reaching the wall came actually right after my second daughter was born. I was on maternity leave in the dead of winter with a two-year-old and a newborn baby, and I was completely exhausted. And it was right then that my mom called and asked if I could come over and help clean out her condo, which she had not cleaned for years, literally. So when requests like this would come, I would think to myself, I don't want to do this, but I should do this because this is going to be the thing that is going to finally make her happy. Mm -hmm. It sounds totally crazy when I say <laughs> that out loud. But when you're in the middle of it, it sounds really right. <laughs> yes. So I went over to start cleaning her condo with her. And halfway through the cleaning process, my mom started berating me once again about what a horrible daughter I was and about what a horrible mother I was sure to be, too. And for whatever reason, in that moment, it was the last straw. And so I walked out crying and I said out loud to God, you have to tell me what to do, God. This was a prayer I'd prayed for years. But in that moment, as clear as day, I heard God say to me, you can't fix her. Wow. Which now sounds like a relief, but at the time, I did not want to hear that. And I was pretty angry that God wasn't going to let me fix her. But soon in time, it became very hopeful. Mm. Well, that reminds me, though, sometimes hitting the wall looks like it will be just too hard to do this, transform, this transforming work. And so many pe people retreat actually to a safer and a more familiar place for a time or maybe forever. I can totally understand that. This might be a, a recognition that the hurt or the wound or the pain is just too great to embrace or that we're just really not ready at that point to do the work. Both are understandable. But for most of us, finding the courage to face the wall, if we face it, takes the assistance of more than one person, mm -hmm. of a community. So it's helpful, even crucial, to find trusted friends, clergy, spiritual director, a small group, or a therapist counselor to help us walk through us, with us through this process. I really don't think it's a job that can be done alone. Yes, and we you have to find the resources that work for you. Both of us have found a lot of resources along the way. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about a few of them now. So St. Ignatius is one of my favorite ones. <clears throat> he uses a poignant visual metaphor for what the transformation at the wall looks like. So before the wall, we're in this large ship going steadily in one direction at a fast clip. 
then we find, as we work into this, that we on the ship are going at a fast clip in the wrong direction. <laughs> oh my gosh. What we thought was best for us is really the worst. And we thought what we thought was worst was now the best. Like if you thinking the best was to help your mom, but that was really the worst. Right. Me thinking I should work much harder to heal my marriage when it wasn't going to heal, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very difficult. So the whole ship needs to turn around in the water and go the other direction. But this takes time and needs the effort of many people. And so it is with going through this wall. What we gain is interior freedom and connection with our true self. But wise observers would say that so much changes that you might not even recognize yourself on the other side of this wall. Mm, true. Other wisdom figures talk about the wall in this way. St. John of the Cross calls it the dark night of the soul. A lot of us have heard that term. Carl Jung and William Miller talk about individuation and embracing our shadows and our childhood wounds. Teresa of Avila talks about traveling through the interior castle, healing both spiritually and psychologically, especially healing our image of God is something that a lot of spiritual writers talk about as being a part of these sticky processes. <laughs> sticky processes, right. <laughs> I believe we become aware of the wall when we want, oh, that when we become aware of the wall, we want to move through it. And at least for me, I want to move through it very fast. In my own journey, I found actually that it takes a quite a long time. The wall image is so appropriate because brick by brick, I started to become aware of patterns and habits in my life that were not only no longer leading me to growth, but were keeping me from growing. And all the ways that I had used to work around the challenges I was facing in my life were not working anymore. And that's, I think, literally where the phrase, I've hit the wall, comes from. When we come up against the wall, we're stopped dead in our tracks. We can choose to retreat or to sit down or to bury our heads in the sand. But to continue growing with God and in healthy relationships with others, we're called to tend to the wall with the help of God. I like that image of approaching the wall brick by brick, because I think that's pretty real. You take out one brick, you deal with something, and then you set it aside. And then a year later, you take out another brick that's very fam familiar. But then pretty soon, you know, you have more bricks out of the wall than you did before. Or maybe we encounter smaller walls when we deal with things one at a time. And then pretty soon you start get to get an idea that by encountering these smaller walls, you've really learned how to gain the wisdom from them so that when you're hitting this major transformation of the wall, then you're more able to engage with it. Hmm. Yeah. I think one of the biblical stories that wonderfully illustrates what it looks like to approach the wall is the story of Peter. Peter convinces himself that he understands Jesus and all it will take to faithfully follow him. But we see that Peter's ego gets in the way of his faith time and time again as he reaches out in his own strength instead of trusting in God. Peter's confidence in himself leads him to almost drown even when he walks out on the water to meet Jesus by himself. When Jesus tells Peter that he will deny that he knows him three times, Peter refuses to believe Jesus and then, of course, denies him three times that very <laughs> night. Peter goes as far as to tell Jesus that he can actually prevent him from dying. And then this is when Jesus famously says, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Peter, I think, finally wrestles with the wall when he has to come to grips with the truth that 
Jesus did in fact die and that he could not prevent it and that he even experienced some failure in the midst of that. And then he moved through the wall and was able to trust in God's larger story for him and the ways he could move forward in the world. And thank you, Peter, for being so real. Yes. You know, oh he's, my gosh. Yeah, he's so real. I love Peter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, we're also including a poem for each phase of the wall to encourage and for people that learn more through poetry. And so here's a poem I wrote um, for approaching and moving toward the wall, through the wall. It's called God Smiles. I say, hang on. God says, let go. I say, I'm afraid. God says, I know. I say, my way. God says, fine. I say, it doesn't work. She smiles, now mine? I say, now your way. God says, through pain? I say, no, painless. He says, in vain. I say, okay, lead me on. God says, through the night? I say, I'm afraid. She says, that's all right. I say, I let go. He says, you got through. I smile. I'm not afraid. God smiles too. Such a beautiful poem. <laughs> I, I just, It's so real and so true. There are other things like this actually on J Janet's website, janethagberg.com. So if you go there, you'll see other poems, pieces of music actually for each stage of the wall, and some reflection questions that we'll go over in just a second too. So another thing we want to give you at the end of this little part of the wall is a little pocket prayer that you can either memorize or write out and tuck it in your pocket. And they're just really short. So here's one for approaching the wall. Loving and gracious God, I know you love me. Hold me close as I face into the truth of my life and help me to heal. Amen. Amen. And here are some reflection questions as you approach the wall, too. The first is, as you look back over the last few years of your life, do you notice any recurring patterns or stuck places that you want to pay attention to or look more deeply at? The second is, what is the most distressing constant? Is it a person, a behavior, or an addiction, something in your life that you just don't seem to be able to control after trying everything? This could be actually another sign. The third question is, what physical symptoms keep repeating themselves and leave you frustrated or angry? And then lastly, where is God nudging you directly or through your relationships with others to take a deeper look at your life? Another way of saying that is, how is God maybe troubling the waters in your world, inviting you to look more deeply? Well, Danielle, now let's move to part two, which is embracing the wall. So far, approaching the wall has been a little bit strenuous, and now it gets to be a little more strenuous. <laughs> so our hope is that we have a pathway to embrace the wall. The core truth of the wall is what will transform our lives. And that truth is that the struggle that gets you to the wall is not the essence of the wall. It's how you respond to the struggle and what you allow God and other wise guides to heal in you at deep levels that is the essence of the wall. So the wall is really a place of surrender 
to the healing work of God. And sometimes, as we said in the last segment, the wall just seems too hard. And for some, it is. We make no judgment on that. Many people may hit the wall and then choose to go back to a more familiar place or stay in a pre-wall place and cope there. But for others, choosing to move through the wall then requires a deeper personal understanding of the wall and what it will take to address it. For instance, we might be aware of how a child of ours is manipulating us in devious ways, yet we don't know how to face the fear of parenting in any other way. We are not confident. We become afraid of what it will mean for our relationship with our child if we embrace the wall. Another example is that we've seen the pattern of alcohol abuse in our own lives, and yet we think of it as a way to soothe our loneliness and can't think of any other way or are afraid of looking at the underlying causes of our loneliness. Or maybe we notice the pattern of being intimidated by three different bosses who are abusive, and yet we can't even imagine how we could stand up to them. So we end up muddling through and wonder why we get one illness after another. Or in our faith life, we're critical of one minister after another, and then we're, we're not really noticing that the, their behavior is decidedly similar to one of our own dysfunctional parents. So when we face these deeper truths, that's when we embrace the wall. So again, the core truth is when we gather the courage to face these deeper truths of what lies underneath the surface of our repeated patterns, we begin to embrace the wall. So let's now break the wall experience into four different parts. The four-part process of embracing the wall is awareness, forgiveness, acceptance, and love. Awareness is the task that emerges first when we're facing the wall. As we look at our lives, we become aware of these repeated patterns that are keeping us stuck, and we uncover the essence or core issue that we're actually wrestling with. This is more than a simple job hurdle or a breakup with a friend. It is a deeper pattern of wounding that cannot be covered up at some point and has to heal or else it goes underground and it can be the cause for illness, pain, or bitterness. Essentially, we need to grapple with our shadow behavior and embrace it to learn our core issues. I had to realize that I had a deep pattern of trying to fix things in every area of my life. I think it's why I actually became a pastor, to just (laughs) fix more things in people. In Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with the angel in his own past transgressions to receive a blessing from God. And as we become aware of the core issues that we have had repeatedly ensnare us, we begin to acknowledge that we're in need of healing, both spiritually and psychologically. God then is inviting us to heal and experience more divine intimacy with him and others, yet it will take real wrestling and letting go of our old ways of survival. One good example of this is in my friend Bobby's life. She has a daughter who estranged herself from and her family from Bobby for more than 10 years. It took Bobby several years to decipher the issues beneath the estrangement because her daughter blamed her for all of her issues, issues and told her that she never even really had a family to speak of. They went to counseling, and that got even worse. No one would even listen to Bobby's part of the story. Nothing Bobby did, and she tried several things, made any, any difference. 
And the core for her was that she was trying too hard. She finally had to come to terms with losing her daughter and had to heal herself of the real issue for her, which was feeling that she was a bad mother and that she had done something wrong, something to cause this. And in addition, part of her core of self-recrimination came from the fact that she was born in a culture in China and raised by a Chinese woman absorbing that inferiority sense that, um, that women have in China. And that not only hurt her personally, but also her relationship with God. So to heal with her daughter took years of counseling in the wall, including writing letters to her daughter, very real, honest letters that she didn't send. But she buried a photo of her daughter at the cemetery near her husband's grave. And then she worked with spiritual directors to find the core issues and to heal them. And she also finally healed her self-image as a woman by hearing from God that God had intentionally created her female and loved her for being a woman all of her life. And that was a huge relief. I think what's fascinating about Bobby's story is two things. One, this idea of stop trying so hard. Mm -hmm. That does seem to be a key theme at the wall and something that is very counterintuitive (laughs) to how all of us like to operate. Mm -hmm. And then number two, these practices, finding things we can do that can give us a way of moving deeper, I think, Mm -hmm. into the new truth that we are discovering. Mm So forgiveness is the next invitation at the wall. There are often two parts to forgiveness, forgiving others and forgiving ourselves. For a deep dive on forgiveness, we would recommend Desmond Tutu's book, The Book of Forgiving. It is one of the best books that I have read on forgiveness. I hate to say it, but there is no formula for forgiving (laughs) others, but there are things that you can do. Forgiveness really does come through time, through prayer, and by processing our pain with trusted listeners. Forgiveness is not often a face-to-face experience of telling someone they have hurt us. And many times we don't receive any vindication for the pain that we have felt. Yet, we're still called to forgive. Sometimes for forgiveness to take place, we need to release people to their own lives and to just let them go. And other times we have to release our broken images of God in order to gain intimacy with a healing and healthy image of God. And many times, most of the time, we also need to forgive ourselves. Usually this involves forgiving ourselves for whatever role we had in the issue, even if that means we did nothing wrong except to neglect our own stories or not speak up for ourselves. And sometimes we are complicit with the other person's behavior without really knowing it fully. Forgiving ourselves means that we admit that we did play a role in where we are today. And then we can wrestle with the deeply ingrained patterns that are keeping us from new life with God and with others. Another key moment for me in facing the wall was realizing that I was in a conflict with my boss that was immovable. I was serving at the church that I grew up in as a pastor, and I had all sorts of ideas about how things should go in the church. My boss and I had had a pretty good relationship, but over time we grew to have an adversarial relationship when we didn't see eye to eye on the direction the church should go. He did and said some things that felt dishonoring and disrespectful to me and my leadership. And the only way I can describe it is that I snapped. (laughs) What began as a justified frustration turned into a deep anger within me. 
I couldn't even talk to him for about six weeks. My anger had begun with good reasons. I was wronged, I was disrespected, and I was hurt, but I could not move past the anger. And for three months, I repeated my story of injustice to myself and to my close friends over and over again. And in that period of time, I was not interested in owning any part of the story for myself. I was interested in telling everyone how bad he was and in getting vindication. Until one night when I had a dream that I actually was in a wheelchair. And it was clear to me in the dream that I had a job to do and my job was to ring a bell. But as long as I was sitting in the wheelchair, the bell was just out of reach. So I woke up at about 1.30 in the morning, which I never wake up at that time. I got up, I wrote down the dream because I knew that it meant something, but it took me several weeks to figure it out. Through prayer and talking with close friends that I trust, I realized that my anger toward my boss was what was keeping me in the wheelchair. My Mm. part of the anger was keeping me in the wheelchair. So the dream made me aware that I had to begin working through this anger if I was going to do the job that God had called me to do. Ringing the bell, you mean. (laughs) Right, exactly. I have to say, sadly, it took months to unpack my anger. It took so long for me to own my own piece of the story and move toward unforgiveness. In so many ways, it was like peeling an onion. I would work through one layer of anger only to realize there was another layer of anger waiting for me. But it's not about how fast it goes. It's about making sure that it is real when the healing happens. So releasing the need for vindication was key for me in finding forgiveness. Realizing that no matter how right I thought I was, it didn't matter if I was holding on to the need to be right and if that was keeping me stuck inside all of this anger. I spent significant time in prayer during that time asking God to release me from my desire to hold on to old patterns and stories. And I asked God to help me start to see my boss with some sort of compassion. So are we having fun yet, Tanya? (laughs) (laughs) I get tired just talking about it again. (laughs) And here we go. In my well story, I had to consciously forgive myself, my abuser, and my childhood image of God. I want to focus on that childhood image of God. I did that by way of creating a ritual with a clergy friend of mine to release my old image of God and find a new, kinder, and more intimate image of God. Part of my core issue at the wall had to do with being addicted to charismatic yet abusive people and then allowing them to abuse me. This happened in my marriage, at work, and also in my spiritual life. I had to find out where that tendency originated. On the one hand, it came from my home, where my father and brother were both alcoholics. But this tendency toward addiction to abusive behavior also came from my religious training, in which God was deemed holy, transcendent, and faithful, but also rigid, judgmental, and mean-spirited. I called it Santa Claus with a big stick. This image was also fairly close to my experience of my own father. Alas, this image of God would not allow me to seek more intimacy since Getting close to that kind of a God didn't even feel safe. So one morning, after thinking about this for a long time and writing about it, I spent several hours hours with a clergy friend of mine, listing all the people and the events that had led me to this fearful image of God. I told her the stories, and we cried, and we also swore a few times. (laughs) 
Then I accepted that this was just the way it was when I was young. And I ended up finding some compassion for myself for believing what was then told to me. I had done nothing to cause it. I was loved by God, and I needed to release that pain. I prayed that I would be able to forgive and to release this God image. God helped me to see that my teachers were well-meaning, had good intentions, and that I could forgive them as well. But I needed more to heal. I needed something in addition to that. I wanted to do something physical, a ritual, to signify my journey of letting go. So after our storytelling, sitting up in my friend's attic, I put the whole list of those people and those events in a little bottle, and my friend and I then drove down to the Monongahela River Bridge, where I got out and threw the bottle into the river. And then it went all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. (laughs) Then, a few years later, I needed to create yet another ritual of forgiveness for my church, and I had done more work, and what I had done, I, what I then did is put a bouquet of flowers and an anonymous thank you note in the hallway of the church. And I thanked them for the things that I had learned I did appreciate. One was leadership that they allowed me to have, and the other was my deep knowledge of scripture, which I didn't appreciate at the time, but I did come to see that later. Mm, those practices are so important to this process. The third part of the healing process is acceptance. Acceptance is the next step in the healing process. It consists of accepting the truth that we need to deal with our pain without judgment or shame, and even embrace our pain to see what else might come up that needs to be healed. We accept ourselves and we accept others without condoning what they have done to us or to others. This might be the hardest work of the wall to just let things be what they are and surrender whatever needs to happen to God. In this phase, we also surrender our identities that we thought we had to retain for our survival or respect or success, relinquishing them for something different and closer to who we've become. Acceptance means that we are surrendering to the work that God is doing in our struggle, while also releasing our own desires, wants, wills, and even egos to God. We admit at this point that we can't go on as before if we really want to heal. We need to fully surrender. Janet, do you remember a song that you used to sing at camp, I think you've shared with me? (laughs) I surrender all. (laughs) Little did I know what that really meant. (laughs) Yes, it's so hard, but Mm -hmm. so important. Well, as an example of acceptance, I want to share from my friend Derek's story and I just have to forewarn you, I might cry. This is a very powerful story. And reading all these, you know, telling these stories, you know, they're, they're yeah, they're hard. So here's a story. Standing in my light brown tiled kitchen in the rear room of my condo in Denver, near the street, just a few miles from where I had just made a drug score. The crushed Budweiser can in my right hand with small poked holes pushed into it to manufacture an unconventional pipe. Up for three days straight and all set to keep the sad party going, I pressed the opening of the can to my parched lips. But something happened. I saw it. A moment of light. You can call it a wall, but really it was an opening, a gate, and I saw it peek through. It was my addiction in a very authentic, genuine light. 
surprising myself in a haze. I picked up the phone and started calling friends, family, whoever, and said, I have a problem. The words actually popped right out of my mouth. Why had it been so hard to say? Accepting that I couldn't do this on my own. Acceptance of my addiction. The humiliation and the utter strangeness of the whole damn glassy-eyed situation. Now I use acceptance to let go. When uncomfortable feelings rise within me, I meditate on the word acceptance. Not reacting, but letting go. Allowing myself to feel uncomfortable feelings. Accepting what's happening inside of me. That is an extraordinary story of acceptance <laughs> yeah. and of seeing the light, the light. and knowing that it's yeah. time. Yeah. Oof. Mm, so powerful. Speaking of a moment of light appearing, Peter, a pastor friend of ours, said this about the wall. One thing I have pondered and heard as I have sat with folks at their walls over the years is how God provides the door, or at least a window, the way through, or at least the place where the light shines in. The light shining in, 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 excuse me, even in a small sliver of light gives us a path to freedom, and we know that we're not abandoned. Hmm. And the path to freedom is like building a whole new life. It takes changing friendships at, chi- at times, getting into communities that are stable, choosing to live differently, and having different boundaries, even with people we love, that still cause us to stress. It means loving people, but not condoning their actions. It means having compassion for them, but not being complicit with them in their actions. It reeks of God's goodness and presence and the capacity eventually to leave the outcomes to God. A difficult prayer during times like these is, God, bring me closer to you, no matter what the consequences. (laughs) Easy for you to say. Yeah, and pray carefully. (laughs) Pray that carefully. The last step within the wall is love. There are multiple facets to love. First, we become aware of the love that God has offered us all throughout the wall process. As you start to look back, you'll see God was with you all the time offering you love. Before we were ever aware of it, God's love was there. At our church, actually, when we baptize babies, we hold them up to the congregation and we say, God has always loved you and God always will love you. And there is nothing you can do to mess up that love. Believing that this is the kind of love God offers us is part of moving through the wall. Second, we realize God's relentless love for us. We grow in love for ourselves as we really embrace this love. We actually start to love where we've been and how far we have come. And then we desire to offer this sort of love to the world. One of the greatest gifts at the wall is that we receive a deeper capacity to love God, to love uh, ourselves, and to love others. An unusual way in which love emerges is that we begin to find new passion or unusually unusual meaning right in the area of our wounded story. This redemptive threshing about with our healing stories helps us move forward to become whole. We are able in this space to let go of our martyr or victim stances. There are dramatic stories of people finding meaningful work right in the area of their former pain. The Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa, led by Reverend Desmond Tutu, 
offered healing and reconciliation after apartheid ended. There's also a story about the family of a young woman who was actually murdered by a group of desperate boys that she had spent time teaching baking skills to for a workable wage. Her parents had to do so much healing around her death, and eventually they ended up taking up her cause and made it possible for the bakery to continue on and to prosper. There's also the story of a homeless man who started mentoring younger homeless men after he was able to find stable housing and stay sober. So many people who have survived and healed from wall experiences, like natural disasters even, the death of a child, or mental illness, end up working in the area of their pain to serve others who are still suffering. That gives you hope, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) My friend Michael is a young man, 48 years old, who has an aggressive form of brain cancer. He's had surgery after surgery, and his cancer journey has led him to do an immense amount of inner healing work on long, hidden, and tragic stories of his ancestral lineage that goes back five generations. He then has worked alongside doctors and other healers to find his core of unconditional love and purpose. He's found out that by telling his story of how the medical world can be a loving partner with patients, it actually helps both partners to do more healing. He also works with other other survivors to invite them to tell their stories and thus find healing and more inner grace. So he has used his cancer experience to confront his own wounding physically, spiritually, and emotionally, and then to bring healing powers to many situations in his life. Whether he lives or dies and he has a strong desire to live, he is doing the healing work that he was called to do in the middle of this illness. He has found that his cancer has given him an avenue for doing work he never knew was possible. One of the redemptive stories of healing at the wall in scripture is the story of Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. It's one of the most difficult stories of a woman in the Bible. She was a widow in the house of the patriarch Judah, whose son she married. Once her husband died, his father legally owed her and his other son, owed her her, his other sons as her partner to produce heirs. That was the law of the land. Women in that culture had very few legal rights, yet Judah deceived her, and she literally put her life on the line to secure those legal rights from him. She found the courage to stand up to him by concealing her identity and tricking him, her father-in-law, into conceiving a child with her. Scripture's really messy, Janet, (laughs) just in case you didn't know. When he found out that she was pregnant, he, as the judge of this case, could have killed her. Then she produced evidence that it was his deed that had resulted in her pregnancy. And as the truth unfolded of what he had done to her, he ended up stating publicly that she was more righteous than he was. Tamar is one of only five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus and is a woman who helped keep the genealogy going despite the overwhelming trauma she had been through but and despite the odds being against her. So really difficult story, but I think an example that Scripture gives us of this hard work that bears really extraordinary fruit if we stick with it. She was one courageous woman for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the poem for this phase of the wall is called, These Are All Just Signs. I sat down to talk with God one day and asked, 
Where can I look for you? How do I find you? You already do look for me, God said. How is that, I asked. Well, you look for me by shopping when you are low and by taking that extra drink when you are stressed. You work long hours hoping to find your worth and you eat to fill that empty place within. But your most creative way of looking for me is expecting someone else to make you happy. Oof. These are all just signs that you're looking for me. And when you know this is true, then you will find me. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. And the pocket prayer for embracing the wall is, Oh, holy darkness, illumine my darkness and bring me anew to you. Amen and amen. The reflection questions for this portion of embracing the wall are, First, tell the story of how you came to the core or the essence of what the wall is for you. The second question is, who helped you to move courageously and healthily into and through the wall or who is helping you? Third is, how did your experience of God and image of God change in your journey with the wall? And finally, which of the four areas, awareness, forgiveness, acceptance, or love, is the one that is the hardest for you to embrace? And then which area is the most life-giving for you to embrace? Hopefully these questions will help you dig into your own wall experience. So lastly, Danielle, let's look at releasing the wall. Are you having fun yet? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the wall. At some point, and that point is different for all of us, we cease to be so intensely involved in the healing at the wall. Sometimes we don't even notice it until the intensity lessens over time. Other times an event or a turning point reminds us that we're on the other side of the major decisions and the soul-wrenching experiences. What we notice most is that we seem called to articulate what happened or to acknowledge it somehow. And then it's time to move outward again in whatever way God is inviting us to be more present in the world. Many parts of this post-wall life are very unique to the individual and may even seem really too mysterious to describe in some detail, so we won't attempt that here. However, there are a few things that seem to be almost universal about life beyond the wall. And yet, with each of these, it's perhaps wise at the end of each of these examples to use the words, on our good days. <laughs> lest we feel that there is yet another ideal to reach beyond the wall in order to be perfect or whole. That's the opposite of what this is. So here are a few examples of post-wall life. Staying intimate with God daily and listening for the guidance of the Spirit in all that we do. Examining our behavior gently and humorously to mend what needs mending and to embrace what longs to be loved in ourselves and others. Post-wall, interestingly, we need to continue to be eternally vigilant about our areas of vulnerability. We need to keep bringing those areas back to God for strength and compassion to face them again. But the good news is it won't take quite as long as it did before, <laughs> I have to say being exceptionally kind to ourselves so that we can be kind to others and experiencing loving detachment or wise discernment from shadow behaviors in ourselves and in others. 
Another is being able to clearly articulate our transformed life and faith story to reflect the healing that we received. And as a result, we behave differently, sometimes very differently, and usually counter to the culture. Sometimes our faith practices change. And we do become a spiritual presence, though, a stable place, a non-anxious place, because we're calm in our interior. Hmm. I think another thing post-wall is moving outward again towards others with compassion and presence, mentoring others even with humility and generosity. And it is actually quite amazing how often God brings stories that are like your story to you Mm -hmm. to give you a chance to revisit it and to help others through it. Embracing our calling as an outgrowth of our experience of the wall and living with utter gratitude, courage, and faithfulness experiencing naturally the gifts of the spirit that we have read about or longed for all along. Another is becoming a healing presence in the world, no matter what our walk in life. Whatever we do in our work or our personal life, we do it in a healing way. And I think a really fun piece post-wall is watching our lives take on spontaneous acts of creativity, simplicity even, beauty, joy, and love. So I'd like to share a story of a friend of mine who illustrates uh, his calling living beyond the wall. He has found his sacred calling now serving as a chaplain for people living with dementia in a long-term care facility. His name is David. He looks them directly in the eyes and he speaks to their souls. And many times they respond, even if they seem far away or in another world. He just knows how to love them and they feel it. Their families feel it too. This presence of David's comes partly from who he has become as a result of his own wounded story. Ten years ago, he was a closeted gay man in a religious order and an alcoholic, not yet ready for the work of recovery. So after a lot of leaving, healing, and honesty, he had to emerge to a different person. It was tumultuous, it was difficult, it was painstaking. And the wall became intimately real in his recovery when he realized he had to leave his religious order in order for him to fully heal. Now, when he offers Eucharist to his residents, he sees in their eyes the very presence of God, and he knows that he is in the right place. Holy, holy, holy. Mm-hmm. A biblical example of healing at the wall is the story of Job. Job, we know, suffered and suffered and through all of his suffering, including the advice of his friends to abandon God or that God had abandoned him, even having an opportunity to curse God and die, Job finally comes to a place in which he meets God and has an extraordinary conversation, a straightforward conversation with much love and insistence on intimacy. And Job is able then to conclude with the words, I know, God, that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Mary Magdalene is another one that we see. She was a close follower of Jesus and was healed of deep pain as a result of her relationship with Jesus. In fact, it's Mary Magdalene who ends up staying with Jesus in his very darkest hour 
and then she encounters him intimately at the tomb. Mary was not afraid of pain any longer, and she went on to be one of the core disciples, along with the eleven, moving forward with Jesus after his resurrection. Two more courageous people that you just cited. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The poem for this post-wall experience, I'm not going to tell you the title because it'll give it away, but it's pretty short. I created you. Now let me love you. That's all I've got to say. Would you like me to repeat that? (laughs) And then the pocket prayer for releasing the wall is, My beloved, thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) The reflection questions at this point are, Who do you know who is living in a mostly post-wall life? If it is you, what does your life represent now that you have been through the wall? What characteristics of this person are most endearing to you? What things would you like to emulate that he or she lives out? Which characteristics of this person are most challenging for you? And then what part of the wall are you most grateful for in your own life? Well, we've come to the end of our description about the wall. Um, I'm hoping people would have enjoyed it, but I'm not sure enjoy is the right word to use. What do you think? Inspire? Or dig in? Dig in or hope or there's a path or I'm not sure. You're not alone. You're not alone. Um, And there's more, I want to say, on my website, JanetHagberg.com from two excellent teachers who have done a lot of work with The Critical Journey, Deb Turnow and Ellen Duffield, and they talk about what they've learned from teaching this, and it's very useful information. And there's also a summary of the book, The Critical Journey. So with that, Danielle and I say goodbye, and thank you for getting to the very end of this and not not, uh, quitting. So this is good. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah, thank you, Janet. A Dialogue with the Wall has been produced by Lead Stories Media. For more engaging content, go to leadstoriesmedia.com.